The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, sitting in for Rick, here's Isabel Barrow. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick and Jean today. If you haven't heard me here before... I'm one of the financial planners here at Edelman Financial Engines. And if you have a question you'd like to have answered on the show, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK. Well, if 2020 news gave us new tag words like lockdown, quarantine, super spreader event, masking, zooming, well, 2021 has brought a whole new set of headlines like new normal or inflation, stagflation. More and more news these days mentions inflation or stagflation. And of course, you know what inflation is, or maybe you even lived through the last era of of high inflation in the 70s. The Fed and Jerome Powell keep telling us that inflation's not yet a concern, but that it is persisting more perhaps than they initially thought. Now, the Fed does have some tools to combat inflation by increasing interest rates, and that in turn encourages some money to come out of the system and get sucked away into treasuries and banks instead of buying goods and services, but the Fed has little control over wage growth or wage inflation. Now, most economists don't expect a 1970s redo. After all, unions don't have the power they once did, and there's really so much transparency now in pricing because of technology and online purchasing. It'll be hard for unions and companies to cause huge price and wage increases over the long term because the marketplace just provides plenty of other options. And in a fair environment, a competitor would just cut their prices and we'd get a hold on anything run away. But what is stagflation? Well, that's when you have higher than average inflation and unemployment and then lower than average growth. Basically, when there's just not enough supply of goods creating stronger demand and thus inflation, but there's also low growth and low employment levels. So does it sound like what we're dealing with right now? Well, maybe not per se, because our growth levels here in the U.S. are still really strong, but it's certainly something you will likely be hearing about more and more as a potential risk. Employers are eventually going to have to increase wages to reflect a strong, you know, there's a strong need for workers and there's an overwhelming demand from customers. And so that is in turn creating this inflation. But at the same time, we do still have higher than average unemployment. And so even though while U.S. growth or GDP is looking great right now, can that really continue if we can't get enough goods to meet the demand for growth? Supply chain dynamics, that's another tag word of 2021, right? Supply chain dynamics. Well, that's ultimately making it harder and harder for manufacturers to get us the goods we want. Even if they could, do they then have the employees in place to manage that demand? In my town, for example, Although restaurants are ready to get back to regular style dining and the whole rigmarole, they may just have to limit the number of tables they can seat simply because they don't have enough staff. Or 
they don't have enough access to supplies or the food they need to be totally operational. Now, as Rick likes to say, I'm not talking about this to scare you, but rather to prepare you. We have seen what I think we can all agree has been a surprisingly resilient market through COVID. And we're starting to see some signs of a return to volatility. So does this mean you panic or you make big sweeping changes to your investments? Absolutely not. Well, I should say as long as you currently have a long-term, well-diversified portfolio with an appropriate asset allocation for your goals, but it does mean that you should understand why this is happening and make sure that you and your portfolio are prepared for perhaps a bumpy ride. Overall, sales at retailers and restaurants grew slightly over the last few months, but more recently, we've seen a big decline in car sales, which is just really related to product shortages and shipping problems. Inventories are low at dealerships because of a global computer chip shortage. U.S. retail sales of new vehicles are expected to have gone down by nearly a quarter in September only because of a lack of inventory. Because demand for new cars is still strong, but automakers just can't keep up production numbers because of the semiconductor shortages and and ultimately the supply chain disruptions that we've seen. And it's estimated that on an annualized basis, there are about 4 million fewer cars being sold this year than there were last year. And that's also almost a million less than there were in 2019. This high demand and low supply has resulted in record vehicle prices. The average price in September was an all-time high of about $43,000. And overall this year, consumers spent more online and in retail stores and on furniture. In the year through August, overall sales rose by about 15%. Retail sales as a portion of our U.S. consumer spending is by far the largest. However, it's clear that in the third quarter of this year, problems surrounding the Delta variant have caused economists to potentially downgrade what their estimates are for our growth for this quarter. And if one thing is for sure, you've seen the prices of certain things going up more than others. It's not just cars. Like, what about plane tickets or even food? Food producers have been struggling with shortages, bottlenecks, transportation, weather-related issues, labor issues. And the end of this is not in sight. Um, We had about 8% inflation at the wholesale level last month, which was the biggest gain since 2010. And the fundamental issue is that things just can't get easily where they need to be. Ingredient suppliers are seeing longer lead times. There's a lack of staff. There's shortages and unpredictability in trucking and container shipping transport. There's also been extreme weather and labor problems and shortages are leading to what could be more serious and longer term disruptions. In fact, the baking industry has reported that there were increases in 49 of the top 50 ingredients that they use to produce their foods. And this problem is global. Uh, In some cases, it's a lot worse than it is here. Uh, For example, lower supplies of grain to feed livestock in other countries has led to increased U.S. exports, which has in turn further driven prices up here. And of course, global shipping continues to be a problem with delays and backups at the ports. About 80% of traded goods are traveling by these shipping containers, and the containers themselves are more than ever. Last year, one of those big 40-foot steel containers was about $2,000. Now, it's about $20,000. And while we're used to hearing about traffic in LA, well, it's not just on the roads, it's at the ports as well. 
The wait to get into the port at Long Beach, California can be up to eight days. And at any given time, there's more than 50 ships backed up. And the backups are due to a variety of issues, but most of it is labor shortages. There's just not enough people there to unload the ships. And then there's not enough truckers available to get the goods on the trucks and get them to where they need to be. One port estimated that about a third of their overnight trucker requests, they just never showed up. But back to food prices and about the increases in prices and ingredients, it's also packaging issues. You know, many food products, right, we're talking about issues with the ingredients, but what about product packaging? Food companies are incurring higher costs for boxes, for cans, and packaging the products. And a lot of this can be traced back to the issues in Texas this past winter with extreme weather. That deep freeze caused a spike in the price of some of the plastics that are used to make milk jugs or bottles, six-pack soda can rings, um, grocery store bags. And in other areas, other than Texas, we also had weather-related disruptions. For you California wine lovers, Napa and Sonoma, grape crops were impacted by fires and droughts, and that's expected to drive up wine prices next year. There's even a shortage of wooden pallets, you know, that was traced back to last year's coronavirus shutdown at some of the mills. And of course, that's still affecting food prices. Americans, of course, are not looking at empty shelves or having to scrape and scrimp for the basics. But these supply chain issues do suggest that something is still off. And we don't know how serious it is going to be or what impact it's going to have longer term on our broader economic recovery. And at the heart of the supply chain issue, it's a labor shortage, of course, related to COVID-19, but there isn't a lot of agreement as to exactly how. But what is clear is that people are at the core of why the supply chain is broken. A significant number of people who are laid off early haven't gone back to work because of a fear of infection or proof of vaccination. And of course, there are more than 600,000 people who have died that were members of the workforce, potentially. And everyday life in the U.S. is acutely dependent on this global supply chain. Americans are concerned about rising prices and the lack of supply, but they're unaware of why exactly the supply chain is broken. And remember, as Rick is fond of saying, I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you. It's your financial planning that can be impacted by things like inflation and employment or childcare issues. But your financial planning is always a work in progress. There's no such thing as just one financial plan for life. Your situation changes constantly. Your financial plan has to evolve with it. You should be having these discussions with your advisor annually or when you have a material change to your situation. And if you don't have an advisor, then call us. We can help at 888-PLAN-RICK or at rickedelman.com. More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick and Jean today. And since Jean's not here today, in her honor, I thought I would spend some time focusing on health and wellness, but as it relates to our money. 
And as many of you know, if you've listened to the show or, or you're familiar with the backstory of Rick and Gene, how they founded and, and grew their company, you'll also know that Gene Edelman is often called the heart and soul of the company. Gene's at the root of why we have so many people still working here 30 plus years later. She has a saying. She says she wants all of our employees and clients to be, quote, happy, happy, happy. I had the pleasure of seeing Jean Edelman last week, and she never fails to inspire me with her approach to life and her approach to money. And while I don't have a word of the day today like Jean does, I've been thinking a lot about what money means to us emotionally and how can we all be happy, happy, happy about our money decisions. They say that money can't buy you happiness, of course, and you know, you've heard that since you were you're little, but the fact is money can buy things or experiences that bring you happiness or satisfaction or joy, or maybe it's just to fulfill a need that you have in your life, whether or not it's buying more supplies for your farm to grow a crop for your own or or other consumption, or maybe it's money to hire a housekeeper to clean your house, or maybe it's a babysitter for a night out with your, your spouse, or just simply to give you more time to spend with your family versus working a few more hours. We know that money plays a vital role in our satisfaction within our lives. So how do you truly view your own relationship with money? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? Do you enjoy your money and do you enjoy spending it on things you love? Or do you prefer to watch it grow in your bank account or your investment account and not spend it? You know, we're all different with our views on money and our own personal finance. And oftentimes we have those views and we have those behaviors because of things that we learned as children, or maybe we didn't learn as children. How our parents were with money can often shape our own feelings about money, good or bad. You know, my own parents had very different views from each other on money. And I don't know, I've always wondered if in part that is what led to their divorce. And so is it really all that surprising that their child would grow up to think about personal finance as being really vital to life and to happiness? You know, maybe it's that I saw that it can be destructive to have families worry about money or fight about money. And I've made it my own life's work to help people avoid that. But what about you? What were your parents like with money? Did you grow up in a household where there wasn't a lot of money and you watched your parents struggle? And if so, What money decisions do you make now or have you made that reflect that experience? Or maybe you had a parent who was a great saver, but they never invested the money because they were afraid to lose it. You know, you hear about those depression era savers where they just put it under the mattress or stuck it in a CD in the bank because you were too afraid of losing it. You know, I've heard stories of people that found money frozen in the freezer from a grandparent. Nobody knew it was there. So how has that fear impacted you if that was your case? You know, how has it hurt or helped your financial situation over your lifetime? And what can you do now to fix it? Can you think about what your emotional relationship is with money and about what you really want out of life? What do you really want money to do for you? Studies have shown that often when we retire, we can feel sort of lost initially You know, part it's because your self-worth might be tied up in your career, or maybe you were a stay-at-home parent and you've spent your time raising your kids and suddenly they're gone and you're an empty nester. Or if you're a retiree, either way, you know, your job is gone along with that prestige or that respect, that responsibility that you felt. 
And maybe it's friendships you had at work. Oh, and of course, the income you had too. But have you considered all of those dynamics as part of your retirement plan? Because as Gene Edelman often says, personal finance is more personal than finance. So maybe you are better off easing into retirement. Maybe it's working part-time or doing some consulting after you retire. Maybe you're just not 100% ready to pull the plug on your job. Or maybe you are 100% ready to pull the plug on your job and you hate your boss and, and you're ready to start living the rest of your life. But think about this. Is it time for you to start looking at your overall plan or maybe talking to a financial advisor perhaps What are your true goals in life as it relates to your money? Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, I want to be able to retire and have enough to live on the same standard of living. Or maybe I want to do some traveling. But think about this on a little bit of a deeper level, right? It's the first question we hear ask our clients when we meet with them for the first time. Because it's ultimately what drives your own personal financial plan. What are your aspirations? What drives the choices that you make or have made? Now, really, really think about this, and I'll give you some examples to get you started. Is leaving a legacy to your children or grandchildren important? You know, is it travel? Is it traditions? Maybe it's just simply security or financial stability, or maybe it's having fun in life or spending time cultivating relationships. And so if you've decided it's time to retire, but all your friends were through work, maybe you need to look into spending money on classes, or maybe you need to spend time volunteering with organizations so that you're still able to socialize and make new friends. For lots of people, that's one of the major draws of a retirement community. It's meeting other people of a similar age or demographic to pick up a hobby with. My dad's I think he's 78. Sorry, dad. I don't remember exactly, but he's somewhere in there. And he spends part of every day playing pickleball. He found that although his true love is sailing, he can't do it here year round. So he spends time playing pickleball. He gets to socialize. He gets to laugh. He gets exercise at the same time. He loves it. And I know for me, some things that drive my decisions about money are are time, tradition, family, friends, connecting with people. So what does this mean for me? Well, maybe it means I need to spend money on things that give me more time. You know, can I outsource and have somebody mow the lawn so that my husband and I can spend time together? You know, I want to build those types of things into my retirement budget. So what about you? What's on your list? And as it relates to this, if you're married or in a relationship, what's on your partner's list? And do they match up? Most of the time, it's going to be a little different and that's okay. But it is important to talk and have that conversation early and often about your joint goals. Because even if they're different, there will be a happy medium. If you love to travel and your spouse doesn't, maybe you need to travel with your friends and and they get to stay at home and have some alone time. But I'll leave you with this thought. If you haven't discussed your goals, your wants, or your needs as they relate to your future and your money, now is the time. It's never too late to plan for your future, even if it's only tomorrow or next week or next year. And if you don't know where to begin, start with talking to a financial advisor. It's our job to help walk you through this, to ask the right questions, to define what it is your life can look like going forward. But if you do call an advisor, make sure it's a fiduciary like we are here at Edelman Financial Engines. And either way, make sure you write it down. And as you're thinking about your future, think about this. By the year 2035, about half of the occupations today and some of those industries could be gone. And it's because of rapid changes coming our way thanks to disruptive technologies. 
Rick will be hosting a brand new virtual event, The Truth About Your Future, on Tuesday, October 19th at either 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The presentation is meant to help you understand these coming changes that could reshape everything from tax law to how you live, how you work, or how you prepare for retirement. Rick will discuss the potential changes involved in the latest technology like artificial intelligence, 3D printing, neuroscience, the blockchain. So join Rick Tuesday, October 19th at either 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. You can go to edelmanfinancialengines.com to register. Well, many of you have either recently refinanced or doing it now, or maybe you're buying a new home. And part of what determines the rate you got or will get is your credit score. Lenders use that score to determine if you're likely to repay a debt and what interest rate to charge you. Well, a new consumer reports analysis of five credit apps that you would go to to get your score found out that that score might completely differ from the one that the lender is using. So really, what good are they if they're not reflective of the lender's scoring? In addition, Consumer Reports said that some apps are charging for the scores and are also charging users for a bundle that includes their credit report, even though consumers are legally entitled to receive their reports annually. During the pandemic, some of the major credit bureaus had offered consumers free weekly access to their reports. But consumers aren't currently entitled to free credit scores, except in current situations. But here again, the scores may not always reflect the score the lender will use depending on the type of loan you're seeking. So you need to be aware of this when you start shopping for a loan. The credit score you paid for and think you have might be worthless in the eyes of your lender. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. With the publisher of the newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. Rick is off this weekend. I'm Isabel Barra with you here today. And we're going to talk with Lynn in Pound Ridge, New York. Lynn, you're on with Isabel. What's your question? I can't thank you enough for taking this call. I appreciate it. My story is that when I applied for Social Security benefits uh, later than my 70th birthday, which was in the summer, I applied online. It worked out fine. And I did it with a follow-up call to make sure I had all my papers in order. During that call, the representative from Social Security asked me if I had ever received spousal benefits. I said I had no idea what they were. And she said, well, we sent you a letter in February of 2018 when your husband filed for Social Security when he retired. said, I never received that letter. Mm. She said, and we assume that when we don't hear back from you, that you don't want the money because uh, a lot of people don't. And when I asked why, she said, well, it puts people in higher tax brackets, which seemed a bit ludicrous to me. However, I said, but if I didn't receive the letter, how would I know to do this? She said, well, I really don't know. And she says, but I have a letter and I'll send it to you. She did not send me the letter, but she did make an appointment for me to speak to another Social Security representative who, because she didn't know about all the benefits and so forth, she actually was phone-to-phone with my human resources representative from my employment. It was kind of comical. She 
she told me that my Social Security was in order and I would be paid, it had nothing to do with spousal benefits, the call. But finally, after asking her twice, I did receive uh, the letter that I didn't receive, and which was titled Retirement Survivors and Disability Insurance, nothing at all to do with spousal insurance. So had I even gotten the letter, it would not have applied to me anyway because I wasn't retired, I'm not a survivor, and I'm not disabled. So it, this amounts to probably almost fifty or $60,000 that the government now has and I don't have. Hmm. And I'm wondering what to do because the Social Security rep said to me, well, it, you know, you probably won't get it because uh, you got the letter and um, that's it. So I'm appealing to you. Obviously, it's complicated. Let me just for everyone out there listening who doesn't understand all the terminology here and what's going on. You know, Social Security, basically, you become eligible for early Social Security when you're 62. And full Social Security somewhere between the ages of 66 or 67, depending on exactly when you were born. And then you have the maximum Social Security, which is the last point at which you can get any increases, which is age 70. So in theory, you know, every month you wait after age 62, it's going to go up a little bit. So the longer you wait, the better it is. But that's based on your own Social Security benefit. Now, now, I won't even get into, you know, right now on this call today because it doesn't apply Social Security, disability or survivor's benefits, all of which right. or divorce spouse benefits. You know, there's all these other complexities. But spousal benefits is something that exists whether or not you, Lynn, had your own Social Security benefit or not. So if you're a spouse of someone who has a social security benefit, you're eligible for a spousal benefit. Now, whether or not you want to take that spousal benefit or even can take that spousal benefit is going to be based on what your benefit is. So in your case, Lynn, you also are working and theoretically you're, you were still working, were you not, when your husband retired in 2018? Yes, and I'm still working presently. All right. So over 70, still working now, but you have started to get your social security checks now, now that you're 70, correct? Yes, I have, and I okay. got one check where they could make it retroactive for January. Mm -hmm. So I got one spousal benefit uh, payment for January, and that's it. Okay. So what I'm looking for is a retroactive payment. Right. So basically, and backing up, and I, and I get it, uh, but backing up here a little bit, again, if you are someone who has a spouse who also has a Social Security benefit, if their benefit is more than twice what your benefit is, you will oftentimes receive a higher benefit as a result, meaning you're going to get 50% of whatever your spouse's benefit is when right. you apply, as long as your spouse has applied. So in this case, you became eligible for that spousal benefit in 2018, mm -hmm. but you weren't ready to take your own. So here's right. what would have happened had you taken that spousal benefit. Now, and, and I'm also going to clarify something here. Were you born before January 2nd of 1954? Yes. Okay. 1951 to be exact. Okay. So your case is somewhat unique because right. you were, in fact, eligible for something. You know, anyone who is uh, younger than January 2nd or was born after January 2nd of 1954, this doesn't apply to them. So you are sort of in a special case where you were eligible for something called a restricted application. So you could have filed for spousal benefits in 2018 and deferred yours so that instead of 
of getting a cut in your benefit because what happens is Social Security says now when you apply, whether or not it's for your own or for a spousal benefit, that is deemed the age at which you applied. So if you were born after 1954 and you had applied in 2018, your own benefit now would be less. Even though you weren't taking yours, you were taking a spousal, your benefit would be less because they would have said, no, 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 you took it when you were 68. So you're going to get a little bit less on your own because that has started the clock on your social security filing, regardless of which one it was. So this is only because you were born before January 2nd of 1954 that you were eligible for this restricted filing. And so what that would have entailed is you go down and and you file uh, as a spousal benefit. You restrict the filing to only spousal and you defer yours until you're 70, at which point you get your full social security. That clock didn't start in 2018, but rather starts now in 2021. In terms of what, (laughs) in terms of what you have um, to deal with now with social security, you know what, Lynn, that is a really good question because I wish I could tell you that there was a great solution and that their social security is going to work with you. But, you know, I fear that they are going to say, well, as they already have, well, you sort of missed the boat. Now, that doesn't mean I don't encourage you to continue to take this up the ladder. Right. You know, you, you, again, you were eligible for something that would have given you quite a bit of money over that period of time had you known about it. You know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish we could have helped you way back then. But now what you're dealing with, I think, is you're, you're going to have to really try to get up the ladder there at Social Security and see about getting retro benefits. I have seen it happen before. I haven't seen it go back three years, but I have seen retro benefits going back a year. Um, so I, I do think it's possible or at least plausible that you can get somewhere with this. But, you know, based on what you've told me, I don't know how much they're going to work with you. So you may end up wanting to think about hiring an attorney or someone to represent your rights as it relates to this. We What we did was we had our investment advisor tell us to contact uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is our representative. And they actually have a, um, a department for this. Okay. So I've written them a letter as well, and they say they take care of it, and they've retrieved a lot of money for people. Now, where it is right now, who knows? Yeah. Um, but, you know, and they, they, they can't tell me anything at this point, but at least, you know, someone's working for you. But in the meantime... I, I don't know whether I should hire an attorney or just let them take it and let it fail or let it succeed. I'm not quite sure about that. Well, I think, you know, the, the path of least resistance to begin with is probably the best one. Okay. Um, but, you know, I can't give you legal advice, so I right. will have to back off a little bit there. But, you know, I think exhaust your resources first before you go to sort of that nuclear option yeah. um, and, you know, see where you get. Because, again, Social Security might work with you. You know, you call Social Security three times, you might get three different answers. So. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Exactly. And, and the fact of the matter is, it's our money. Yeah. And it's totally unfair if the government says, well, we get to keep it now. Yeah. And I never received the letter. Now, they can prove they sent it because it's on paper, but it's not certified. It's not registered. We had small mailbox incidents in our neighborhood, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as, as somebody said, well, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know if you don't receive it. How would you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it is a conundrum, yeah, you know. But. It is, yeah. 
Well, and this is one of the things, you know, I, I, um, I often talk to people just even in, you know, sort of the first time I meet them is, is what are your social security filing options? You know, what are you thinking about? It's always part of a sort of full blown financial plan here. But the reality is you're right. It's really complicated. If you don't have someone to talk to or if you don't have somebody to talk to who knows the answer, it makes it a lot harder to figure it out. And it certainly, you run the risk of, you're right, leaving money on the table. So exactly. this is a, a scenario, Lynn, that, you know, I don't wish upon anyone. It's very frustrating. And, you know, obviously it's a little lot of money at play here. So I, I sincerely hope that you can get some action from Social Security on this and get some retroactive payments. I'm not super confident about it, but I, I think it's worth a try. So um, best I can do, Lynn, is keep working on them. And, you know, once you exhaust your resources, then you look at, you know, what's next. And, you know, the beauty of this call is that there are other people listening, because I think the show is just amazing, and that they will learn something from this. I certainly that's hope the so. Whole, that's the whole point to speak about this, and I think it's it's a fantastic thing that you're doing for everybody. So I thank you very much. I wish you could hand me the money tomorrow. <laughs> However, being that you can't, that's okay. I wish the same thing, Lynn, and I certainly wish you good luck here. Keep us posted. Let me know what happens. I will definitely keep you posted. Thanks so much, and I, I hope you have a great day. You too, Lynn, and we were talking with Lynn in Pound Ridge, New York. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow. In for Rick today, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. with the author of the 2008 Personal Finance Book of the Year, The Lies About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. show continues. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick and we're going to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. We're going to be talking with John. John, you're on with Isabel Barrow. John, what can I help you with today? Yeah, um, I had a question with the reports of rising inflation and the significant chances for increased government spending. Would it be prudent to consider treasury inflation protected securities for a fixed income side of an investment portfolio? And um, if so, would you recommend buying these securities directly through mutual funds or through ETFs? And also, would you consider staying short-term versus intermediate or longer-term? And I would appreciate any assistance or insight you can provide. So you're right. Uh, What we're looking at is higher than average inflation. Now, who is to say, I guess, whether or not that is something that is uh, more temporary and just really based on, you know, if we look at year over year, where we are today in prices is really different than where we were sort of in the mid-COVID 2020 era. So there are those who think that price increases and and the inflation that we're seeing right now is temporary. Some of those people include our own Federal Reserve. So I think that as it relates to putting a good amount of money or, you know, all of your fixed income basket, let's say, into something like TIPS and TIPS are Treasury Inflation Protected Security. So for those who don't know that terminology, essentially it's buying a treasury bond that um, has a inflation protection component. So it'll go up in price a little bit as it reflects the CPI. So you get a little bit of inflation protection, but the bottom line is you're still getting almost nothing on your interest. So my question, John, is what's the purpose of the money? You know, what are you, what are you investing for? 
Actually, the focus would be on a, uh, it's a currently it's a retirement portfolio. It's uh, and um, there's no real need for income per se. So basically, just trying to keep the capital and and perhaps generating some growth. Okay, so capital, you know, you want to preserve your capital. You want to generate some growth, presumably because you're worried about it. You want to generate some growth beyond just um, inflation. Now, on one hand, if you put money in tips and if inflation is higher than average, well, you'll get a little protection there, right? But you're just keeping up with the, you know, you're keeping up with the value of the dollar and you're getting a tiny bit of interest. Um, If it's long term money, you're not looking at generating any income on it. My my question would then be, well, what about in five years or what about in 10 years? You know, what about the longer term time horizon? I think you're uh, it's easy to look at your investments through the lens of what's happening now, what's happening today and what we're all worried about, what's on our minds. You know, we're all thinking about the market. We're all thinking about inflation. We're all thinking about, you know, the growth of the economy and how does our economy recover from all of this. And so it's natural. But I think if you back up a little bit and you sort of think about what your portfolio construction is really meant to do, if you want to preserve and grow, it's important to be diversified and not just look at tips. I mean, maybe maybe tips would play a role in your your portfolio. And I'll talk a little bit about what is a good way to do that if you are going to do it. But overall, there are other areas of investments that might also give you some inflation protection. You know, stocks, U.S. stocks, overseas stocks, um, emerging market stocks, you know, equity investments in general, um, or even precious metals or technology stocks. You know, there there are quite a few areas of our market um, that you can invest in for some inflation protection other than just simply tips. Now, if your primary concern is inflation and you're not worried at all about essentially having any interest or earning any money on your money, then tips certainly are a, an appropriate way to go. If you are going to invest in tips, and I think this really goes for bonds in general, the better way to do it is through a fund. Buying individual bonds is hard. It's expensive. It's hard to get rid of them if you want to sell them. And then, of course, if you do want to sell a bond, now you have to worry about, well, what are interest rates today and how much is my bond worth? If you're buying it within a fund, at least you have broad diversification, not only of different variety of bonds, but also of duration. Duration just being a measure of how long does that bond last and different interest rates. You know, bonds within a fund uh, might be coming due every single day. And therefore, in a rising interest rate environment, you might be able to buy bonds at a higher rate. You know, as those bonds come due, well, good, you're going to turn around, your fund is going to buy some more today at a higher rate. And, and then some other, uh, you know, on the long end are going to be at lower rates. But eventually, all of them are going to come due and they're going to sort of recycle themselves into a portfolio with now higher interest rates as rates go up. So it's important to not only have diversification of the types of bonds that you have, but also in your duration and have high quality bonds. So I guess on the surface here, my answer is, sure, if you want to buy tips, you know, I I don't see any enormous problem with it, but I would do it as part of an overall diversified portfolio and not just put all of your eggs in one basket because... It might not work. And, and certainly, if you're going to do it, I, I would recommend doing it in a, in a fund versus trying to buy individual bonds. How about an ETF? 
ETFs great. You know, we talk about ETFs on this show all the time. And in fact, an ETF is probably an easier way to buy it than a traditional mutual fund. They buy them, sell them on the on the marketplace all the time. And extremely diversified, low cost in general, not a lot of tax ramifications as compared with a traditional mutual fund in many cases. So there are a ton of pros to ETFs. Um, so when I say a diversified fund, you know, I'm referencing an investment fund, be it an ETF or an institutional fund or a traditional mutual fund, you know, whatever you are familiar with and are comfortable with. Although we tend to, we tend to really love um, ETFs around here. Other questions, John? Um, I guess the final point of that is also you, you use the term duration. Um, also given the, well, we mentioned inflation, but the overall interest rate situation as we are in right now, to me, there is much more upward pressure or upward possibility momentum, if that's the term, for interest rates than there would be for them to perhaps go down. So that would then say to me that I would probably not want to go out any further than intermediate in terms of a fund or, a, or an ETF. Well, that's a really great point. So there's not a lot of room for interest rates to go down. And so what happens is uh, if interest rates go up, prices go down. That's sort of how bonds work. But if you own bonds within a fund, and again, ETF, whatever kind of fund, I don't care. Funds in general are going to have thousands, hundreds or thousands of holdings. And there are, even if you're buying an intermediate fund, you might have really short-term bonds in that fund and then really long-term bonds in the fund. There might not really be anything in between. But when they show you the duration, you say, oh, well, the average is five years. So it's an intermediate term fund. But you know, you got a ton of stuff in three months and you got a ton of stuff that's 20 years. So, um, you know, what basically, you know, what you want to focus on is if you believe you're in a rising interest rate environment and you want to try to be, you know, timely in your fixed income investments, put a little bit in a lot of different places, right? Sort of, you get, you're going to have to hedge your bets because there is no reason to have all of your money in one place, either short, intermediate, or long. Now, it might be better right now to stay a little bit shorter in terms of your overall duration if you believe that interest rates are going up, but you still want to have a little bit of everything because it might not happen for a long time. And the benefit of a longer term bond is a little bit of a higher interest rate now. So again, it's it's have a mixed bag, have a diversified approach, and certainly, you know, the risk is, is I would say, greater that interest rates are going to go up than they're going to go down. But no one historically has really been able to predict that with any level of confidence as to how much and when it will happen. So I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Okay. Okay, John. Well, thank you for your call. And we were talking with John in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Rick often talks about exponential technology and the impact it will have on your future. Well, you're invited to join Rick Edelman for our brand new virtual event, The Truth About Your Future, on Tuesday, October 19th at either 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Rick will discuss artificial intelligence, 3D printing, neuroscience, the blockchain. You can go to edelmanfinancialengines.com to register. I'm Isabel Barrow. It was a pleasure to be here today. Rick will be back next week. If you want to talk with us, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK or at rickedelman.com. Have a great week. about money every weekend on the Rick Edelman show.